0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In this programme, I continue chatting with China analyst Mark O'Neill, who recently wrote a book about 12 men who were pioneers on the mainland in the late Qing Dynasty and early Republican period. It was his mother-in-law who first told him about these famous men who came from the area she grew up in, in Zhuhai. Mark's book, The Second Tang Dynasty, The Twelve Sons of Fragrant Mountain Who Changed China, tells of the first prime minister of the republic of china who served briefly under president sun yat sen of businessmen and how they as boys first went to america to be educated a land of which they
1: knew nothing it's very hard for us to imagine now because now the difference between america and china is much reduced you know people in, in in china can watch american films american music they can go on the internet they're very well informed about america before they get there but if we, if we go back to 1875, what was it like then? The, 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 the young, these young boys had no idea at all what they were getting into. They had no conception of life in America. They knew very little about life outside their own village, let alone in a foreign country. So they went on this ship, this enormous journey. They went to San Francisco. Then they were put on a train. They went all the way to the East Coast. And then they were put with American families. And I think we must praise the American families because they were better off people. They were better off than the families they'd come from. They were nearly all devout Christians. They wanted to evangelize these Chinese uh, students. They looked after them very well, fed them, looked after them. uh, And they integrated very well with the families. And this gave the children a very good base. It made it easier for them to adapt They learned English very quickly. So their life was completely different to that of all the other Chinese in America who were at the other end of the social scale. They were working as uh, miners. They were running restaurants. They were coolies. Nobody was helping them. They were at the bottom of the society. They were facing discrimination. Um, Living conditions were very difficult for them. Whereas these students were at the other end. They were at the top of society. They went to very uh, exclusive schools in, in northeast United States. And then they went to Columbia University and other famous universities. So thanks to the, the good preparation of this program, these students were able to have a very good life in America and to gain the most benefit from it.
0: You were mentioning how they've been pioneers in certain areas, um, the first prime minister, for example. um, But how would you say that they contributed to the Republic of China?
1: Well, we've got one character in the book called Mr. Tang Ting-shu, and he was a very able businessman. So he worked initially for Jardine Matheson. He was a comprador. He made a lot of money as a comprador.
0: A comprador? Uh,
1: That means... He's the middleman between Charlie Matheson and and the Chinese clients. So the middleman can always make a lot of money because he's the only one that knows the prices on both sides and he plays one off against the other. But in middle age, uh, Mr. Tang was invited by the uh, government to set up, how should we say, state private companies. That is, private companies but with state backing because the Chinese government wanted to have companies that could take on the foreigners. They didn't want... The economy of China is entirely controlled by foreign firms. So Mr. Tang then threw his energies into this. And he set up many companies, including China Merchants, which is a very famous company now. The Chinese government wanted a shipping firm that would handle Chinese goods, take them overseas. It didn't want all the shipping to be foreign shipping. So he set up this company. And then he set up China's first Chinese-owned coal mine in Kaiping, in Hebei, now, Chinese did not have people to, to, to operate it, so he had to employ foreigners to manage it. But it was a Chinese-owned company. And then he had to build a railway to transport the coal to Tianjin. Railways in those days were very controversial. The, 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 the court in Beijing opposed them because they said they, they disturbed the spirits below the ground. So when he sent his plan for the railway the court said well you can dig up the coal you can build a railway but you can't use steam engines because they're too noisy and disruptive and you'll have to use mules to carry the coal carts from the coal mine to Tianjin So when he So
0: how far I mean if if, if this uh, coal mine was in Herbei he's now taken it to Tianjin which is of course the port city in northern China so how, how what sort of mileage are we talking
1: um, I think about 80 kilometers so anyway when this proposal came to the coal mine of course all the foreigners there laughed at him and said well you can't possibly run a coal mine like this so then he made the decision to build his own steam engine which is completely illegal so he contracted a British engineer to do this and he used scrap metal from the co- coal mine and he built a steam engine called the rocket which is the first Chinese made steam engine
0: Does it still exist?
1: I don't think so, but we have photos of it. So then he used this rocket to pull the coal cars from the coal mine to Tianjin. And uh, just like in China today, he tried to hide this from Beijing. You know, Many people in China are doing things, they don't want Beijing to know. Well, he managed to hide it for some time, but eventually Beijing found out. And then it was a big question whether or not they would ban it, but... uh, Anyway, he he, 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 was, he had enough supporters in Beijing for them to approve it. So Mr. Tang, as I say, set up many companies, but these two, the coal mine and the China merchants, are still alive and well today. So that's why I say he made a, a very big contribution to China in this respect.
0: I'm talking to Mark O'Neill, the author of the Second Tang Dynasty, the 12 sons of Fragrant Mountain who changed China. These 12, um, as you say, they contributed to um, the Republic of China, really, at that time. Sun Yat-sen, of course, as you said, that some of them had foreign connections. Dr. Sun Yat-sen had a brother who was in Hawaii. So these were men with a very uh, international outlook. You said that um, those that studied in America stayed with evangelizing Christian families. Sun Yat-sen became a Christian. Did, um, did some of the others through their experience in the United States?
1: Yes. Um, Tang Guo-an was a devout Christian and remained one throughout his life, and that was one of the main drivers uh, of his thinking for his whole life and got him into a lot of trouble because when he came back to China, he, he criticized a lot of things he didn't like
0: And he was, what was his role again, remind me?
1: Well, as I say, he was a journalist, he was a campaigner, and, uh, of course, if you do that, you upset uh, vested interests. Now, Mr. Ma Ying Biao, the founder of the Sincere Company, he was also a devout Christian, and this informed his whole business life. He was a very successful businessman. He was the first Hong Kong multinational. He went into many different sectors, but he lived very frugally. He didn't drink or smoke and he donated a lot of his money to charity, to schools, hospitals, and charitable funds. I don't want to stress this too much, but I think in those two cases especially, this was a great contribution which the foreigners gave to them and then they gave to China by behaving in this very charitable way and saying that the purpose of life is not only to to make money, but to give back some of what you've made to the society.
0: Tell me more uh, about the contribution of the first Prime Minister.
1: Mr. Tang Xiaoyi came back from America, and his first job was in Korea. He he was the assistant to the Chinese consul in Korea for ten years, and that was the period when Japan was taking over Korea. So he saw very clearly the weakness of China. Then he was in the foreign ministry, and his next job was to negotiate with Britain after its invasion of Tibet. Uh, As you know, the British army from India invaded Tibet, uh, killed a lot of Tibetans, occupied Lhasa, signed an agreement with the then Tibetan government. And Mr. Tang's mission was to get the British to admit that Tibet was part of China. So this was quite a difficult mission given that Britain had just invaded it and was obviously much more militarily powerful than China. But Mr. Tang succeeded. He was very well informed about British public opinion, he knew that many people in Britain were very unhappy about this invasion, what was the purpose of it. It was, it was completely imperial folly. So, after negotiations, he was able to get the British side to admit that Tibet was, was part of China. Uh, this was a great achievement by a Qing government that was very, very weak. His next important role came after the uh, Xinhai Revolution in 1911, when the uh, army mutinied in Wuhan and many provinces in the south declared independence from the Qing government. And it was a very, very sensitive moment in China. There could easily have been a civil war between the provinces in the south that had declared independence and the provinces in the north that were still loyal to the Qing government. So Mr. Tang represented the north in the negotiations with the rebels... So there were two men doing the negotiations. One was Mr. Tang, the other one was called Mr. Wu Tingfang. Now, Mr. Wu Tingfang was actually an overseas Chinese. He was uh, educated in the UK. He was a lawyer in, in, in Hong Kong. So we assume that Mr. Tang and Mr. Wu spoke to each other either in Cantonese or in English, certainly not in Mandarin. So these negotiations that was going to settle... The future of China were held in Shanghai by these two Cantonese, probably speaking Cantonese, and the negotiations succeeded in avoiding a civil war. So the Republic of China was then set up in early 1912. Mr. Tang became the first prime minister with Sun Yat-sen as the president. But unfortunately, the the warlord at that time was called Mr. Yuan Shikai, He controlled the most powerful army in China, and he wanted to be emperor. So he did not really accept the idea of a republic. He wanted himself to replace the Qing dynasty. So Mr. Sun and Mr. Tang remained in office for only a very short time, and they both resigned because they couldn't operate as a republican administration faced with Mr. Yuan Shikai, who controlled the army. So... That is quite a tragic episode. So after that, Mr. Tang never had an important role at the center of politics in China. He was often invited to, but he felt the conditions were not appropriate. However, he later became the county chief of Zhongshan, where where mother-in-law was born. But even that didn't have a happy ending because a warlord in Guangzhou didn't like his popularity and his modernization, and forced him out of office. So his final years were spent in Shanghai. He had a big property in Shanghai, so that's where he lived, his final years. His final end was even more tragic. He was assassinated in 1936. At this time, Japan was trying to set up a puppet government in China, and they approached a lot of senior Kuomintang people to ask them to take part in this puppet government. Now, Mr. Tang was approached but refused. He had no interest. He was in his 70s now. And one of the relatives whom we interviewed said, in fact, he was preparing to emigrate to America. But we think that some people inside the Kuomintang government believe that he would collaborate. So the most likely scenario is that a secret policeman in Shanghai, operating without the orders of his superiors in Nanjing, without the knowledge of Chiang Kai-shek, without the knowledge of Dai Li, who was the head of the secret police, decided by himself to eliminate Mr. Tang Shaoyi to prevent him taking part in a pro-Japanese government. So he went to the house of Tang Shaoyi, and he had bodyguards. So he first of all had to get past the bodyguards, and he brought a big vase, and, and, and Tang Shaoyi liked to collect you know, old vases, so on the on the pretext, he was going to show him this vase, he got past the bodyguards, he got into the room where Tang Xiaoyu was, and his weapon was concealed inside the vase. So he took out the weapon and he stabbed Tang Xiaoyu to death. So it was a very tragic and I think unnecessary end because he wasn't preparing to take part in a pro-Japanese government.
0: What a tragic end. My thanks to Mark O'Neill, author of The Second Tang Dynasty, The Twelve Sons of Fragrant Mountain Who Changed China. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.